When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The village of Clonine is about five miles from the town of Feathered in the county Tipperary. The land in that part of Tipperary is very good. Good dairying and tillage country. Around Clonine it tends to be more hilly and Schlievenamon is close by. The story that we are about to hear took place in March 1895. The location of this story is a labourer's cottage on the side of a hill by the roadside. The principal characters in the story are Michael Cleary, a labouring man, Bridget Cleary, his 26-year-old wife, Patrick Boland, Bridget's father, in whose cottage the Clearys lived, Dennis Ganey, a herb doctor living in the mountains, and John Dunn, who dabbled in Peshogues and herbalism. In 1895, Bridget was 26. She had been married to Michael Cleary for a number of years, but they had no children. Although this was never stated, it was certainly a factor in what was to take place. For Cleary would have blamed his wife for not having children. Bridget, it is said, was a fine-looking country girl. In the words of a Queen's Council of the time, any man would be proud to have her as his wife. Around the beginning of 1895, Bridget became ill and declined in her looks and appearance. It could have been something inconsequential, The doctor could find nothing seriously wrong with her. But it could have been the onset of tuberculosis or pleurisy or something else. Cleary, however, watched the change in her appearance, which he probably exaggerated, with dark suspicion. Bridget was a simple country girl. No scandal had ever touched her. But her husband Michael was a dark man, a man steeped in superstition and pishogues. He saw the mark of the supernatural everywhere. It seems to have been in his family. His mother, it was said, was often seen in the ring fort of Kyle the Granny Hill, a few hundred yards from the Cleary home. This fort on a hill of forest bushes was the recognised centre for the supernatural in that area. Cleary tried to counteract the change in his young wife. He went for the doctor. The doctor came on March the 13th, but Dr Crean diagnosed bronchial catarrh, and he just noted how nervous the patient was. Cleary sent for the local curate, Father Ryan, to say Mass, to drive out the evil spirits from the house. The priest came and said the Mass. He noticed how nervous she was too. In the town of Feathered, Cleary met John Dunn. Dunn told him to contact Ganey, the herb doctor, on the mountain. Cleary did so and got some herbs. By this time, Cleary was firmly convinced that the woman with whom he slept was not his wife at all, but a witch who had assumed the shape of his wife. Large numbers of people were coming to the house to see what was happening and to observe the proceedings. On the night of Wednesday, March 13th, a number of people came to the cottage. Later in the night, shouts were heard. 
Away she goes, away she goes. The neighbours were helping Cleary to drive out the evil spirits, the witches. A number of the men took hold of Bridget in the bed. John Dunn was holding her by the hand, Pat Kennedy was holding her right arm, James Kennedy her left arm and Billy Kennedy was lying across her legs, preventing her from moving. The cottage was lit by a candle in the room and an eye lamp in the kitchen. She was in the bed in the room. She shouted and screamed as they lifted her out of the bed and put her over the fire. The fire was low and they did not burn her. Cleary was walking around the kitchen holding a saucepan containing herbs. Her father, Patrick Boland, held the body for a while to make her answer the question. Are you the daughter of Patrick Boland in the name of God? Bridget replied, I am, Dada. Michael Cleary asked her in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Ghost, was she his wife? She replied that she was. They were now satisfied that they had the real Bridget and not a witch. They then took her back to the bed and went to get some of the herbal medicines prescribed by Ganey. As they poured these into her, she screamed and protested. When they had got some of it into her, they shook her backwards and forwards in the bed and they all shouted, Away with you! Come home, Bridget Boland! In the name of God! They touched her with a red poker to encourage her to take the herbs and the red mark of it was on her forehead. She also had a red bruise on her neck where they squeezed her. When they had finished with her, Mrs Kennedy and Mrs Burke said she should put on some dry night clothes. The women went and found these and put them on her. They asked her if she knew those around her. She said that she did. Michael Cleary showed her one of the Kennedys and asked her what relation he was to her. She said, my first cousin. Everyone in the room was brought before her and she was asked if she knew them. Well, she knew them all. The people in the room were all asking each other, do you think that it's she? And everyone was saying yes. The people believed that all the proceedings had to be concluded before midnight. If not, she would be taken from them. All the people that had come on that night were there to hunt the witches out of the cottage. John Hoolahan, could you, could you tell me where are we now? What is this building? This is the building that uh, Michael Terry and his wife lived in. This is the, the, the nine, this is the cottage? This is the cottage, Back in the 1990s. It is still in perfect condition. There were um, lean to a side bit put to it, and another garage built at the end of it. Otherwise, it's the same as it was 100 years ago. It's on very dry ground here, I'd imagine. There's a good. Uh... Oh, it is on a very high rise, too, and, and I'm wanting sure a liberal flood going here, anyway. They're well, well up off the road and all that. Uh, yeah. So now we'll just walk around the around the cottage and uh, and we'll look at it. Now this 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 piece here, as you say, is the is an addition, but that's the original window of the that's cottage. That's the there. yeah, that's right. So it would be a typical uh, kind of end of the century uh, cottage, wouldn't it? That's right. To be an ordinary farm labour cottage that was built in the hundred years ago. Yes. 
And we have we have a wall here, a stone wall. Yes. And is this building here? This this is a stone building here as well. These are all hen houses, Sharon dog houses in the way. This these were the that that was the hen house. Yes, yeah. And uh, and and did she keep hens? Oh, she did. Bridget Borland. Bridget Borland, she did. Now, if we walk along here, uh, we can actually look in the back window here. I think. That's yeah. right. That's the window now. And if we look in this window, you see the old fireplace. You, you can see the, you can see the fireplace. So it was at the, it was there that the poor girl laid across the flames yeah, or whatever. Because here, right. there she died. Yeah. Now there would be there's land at the back here. We can't see it too closely because there are bushes growing. That's all the property of the. Half acre, left half acre here. There would be an acre going with the acre, cottage. Yeah, but one acre. Yes. So, could you describe to me what it what it was like here from what people told you on the night that that Bridget Boland died, Bridget Cleary? Well, of course, they didn't know for a day or a day after she was dead. They thought that she was going with the fairy thing first, and next thing, word got out she was dead, and that found her then down the fields. In Billet Bay, in a shallow grave, just beside a stream. Since she was taken up in the inquest, and she was buried later in the village of Clunean, old graveyard. And what happened behind that window in on that March night in 1895? Well, we were always told anyway that she was laid on the grave there, and just came and, um, well, afterwards, when the Inquest and all that was told that she was born on the grave. So that's all we knew about it anyway. So that's as far as I can say about that. They wanted to rid her of the fairies? They did, yeah. And all of those people would be well known to your daddy now and to well, well, your grandfather? And well, they were well known in the parish. They were all born in the parish. They were all born in the parish. The people of the time must have felt sad about it. Well, they did, but they never spoke much about it at all. It was always... Well, I suppose they were kind of maybe... They might be talking about it. Were they ashamed of what happened? Well, I don't know. They must have been. So never much spoken at all. She never even spoke of in the public house or anything around. Was there any sense in which the parish and this area would have been seen to be very superstitious to have... No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say there were any superstitions at all in the parish, but just as it happened, I suppose, there's one, one of these things. I suppose when she was so good-looking and all that and turned, changed so much over a few days, they thought that she was raving about women and fairies, and that she was out last night before the fairies and all that. I suppose they got worried about her. And they, and they, they were innocent people, as it was. The fairies had taken away her, yeah. her beauty. That's right. Michael Cleary was directing everything that pertained to his wife. But his mind was a wild place, full of spirits and spells and witches and pishogues. March the 15th, he believed, was the eighth day of his wife's possession. John Dunn told him that he would have enough to do to bring her back. Dunn told him to boil the herb Lismore in a pot, make the sign of the cross over the pot and call on Pishogues to help him. To add to Cleary's emotional turmoil, his father died in the second week of March. 
Sometimes he believed that Bridget was his true wife, more times that she was a witch. But the night of Thursday, March 15th, was the fateful night. On the final night, two men, Smith and Hogan, came into the cottage at Bridget's request. She believed that they could help settle the differences that had arisen between herself and Michael. Cleary told her to get out of the bed, and he got two petticoats, a navy blue jacket and a white shawl for her to dress herself. He brought up a forum for her to sit on. Asked how she was by one of the men, she said, Midland, he's trying to make a fairy out of me. I sent for milk and he wouldn't let me drink it. Other people came into the cottage and one of them said, Bridgie, I'm very glad to see you up. They were all chatting and drinking tea till past one o'clock. Mary Kennedy, a cousin of Bridget's, lay down on the bed to sleep for a while. She was awakened by her daughter screaming, Mammy, Mammy, Bridget's burning. She ran up to the fire to Cleary and shouted at him, What are you doing to the poor creature? Is it roasting her you are? But he just gave her a shoulder that sent her flying. All the people in the kitchen ran into the two bedrooms. Some were peeping out and he shouted, If you come out again, I'll roast you down. He threw lamp oil on his wife and she burst into flames. When the flames had died, he caught her by the head and threw her on the floor like an old turnip. Then he got an old bag and a sheet and wrapped her in these. One of her feet was sticking out and he gave it a kick with his boot. The shock went through the kitchen. He put the bundle in the middle of the floor, opened the door and took the body outside, locking the people in the house behind him. He was gone about an hour. When he returned, he took out his black-handled knife and shouted, Patsy Kennedy, I'll call your name three times and if you don't come out, I'll drive the knife to the handle in you. Patsy answered, Cleary said to them all to come out. I've the hole nearly made, he said. I couldn't drive the devil out the chimney, so I drove him out the door. We're looking into a field here, and this is the field that Bridget Boland, Bridget Cleary, was buried in. Yes, that's right, down about 200 yards there, and in the, near the stream, the stream in the field there. At the bottom of the... Yeah, yeah, just field. in that big green field there. And why did they bring her here to bury her? Well, I suppose they got excited and got frightened and didn't know how to bring her. And they, they said that they thought she, first she was going to go with the fairies. They thought she was going with the fairies. And they brought her in to bury her. No one knew where she was. They thought that she, didn't, she'd never be found out. And what distance from the, from the cottage would this be? About 300 yards, three to 400 yards. And it's very near her own house as well, which is just over the Could corner. Could be, where she, was, where she was born. Where she was born, that's right. It's a story that you heard your father telling many times. Well, that's right. She used to we didn't take much interest in that time either, because we were younger and we, didn't, we hadn't had any great interest in this at that time. But if I had him there, he gave us very good information. Matter of fact, he went to school with this, Mr. Cleary. In one, and they were in the one class in school. He may, may have been something younger than but he was in one class. I think she was 26 or that when, when she um, died, and he was about 25. What did he say about her? Oh, he said she was 
a, a great favour of everyone. That everyone liked her. And and uh, one of them, she probably got sick of pneumonia or pleurisy or maybe TB at the time. They didn't know how she was around. And next thing she changed a lot and got very bad looking. And, and they thought that she was there every night but one with the fairies out the hill, kind of around the hill just near. And they thought then she was, the fairies took her away and took the right one away and left back this one. And what did the people of the place feel about it? How did they view it? Well, at the present time, it's kind of forgotten. But in your grandfather's time? My father's time, well, he was... I suppose he didn't think much of it either. He said they were very quite nice people. And they, were, they just thought that she was a fairy. We saw four men holding Bridget on the bed. Which room was that in? It was in the front room. She was lying on her back and they were giving her something in the shape of milk and herbs. Who were the four holding her? John Dunn, Patrick, James and William Kennedy. Did they force her to take the liquid? They did. Cleary was giving it to her while the others held her hands and feet. Cleary kept asking, Are you Bridget Boland, the wife of Michael Cleary in the name of God? I saw piss being brought in a vessel and thrown over her and her father demanded that she say who she was again. And what next? Someone in the crowd said, put her over the fire. Can you say who said it? I can. It was John Dunn said it. Let us know in what way she was held over the fire. John Dunn caught her by the head, and my uncle Pat Kennedy and Michael Cleary caught her by the feet and held her over the fire. Was it like as if she was sitting on the fire? Yes, she was just tipping the bars. What had she on her at the time? Her shimmy and striped flannel nightdress over it. That was the way she was dressed as she lay in bed. Mm. Was there any more asking of her after that? They put the same questions as before to her again. Michael Cleary put more questions to her first. He asked, are you Bridget Boland, the wife of Michael Cleary, in the name of God? While she was over the fire, did she show any feeling of pain or struggle against the three men who held her? She did, sir. She screamed. And what were all the rest doing? They were looking on when she was placed on the fire. Was she burnt at all when she was over the fire? No, sir. At what time was it uh, that she was put to bed? Between 11 and 12 o'clock. We did not go away until 6 o'clock in the morning. Did anyone go away before 6 o'clock in the morning? No, sir. Be careful about what you're saying. Do not say anything that you're not certain about. Who left first? John Dunn and William Ahern went away about two or half past two o'clock on Friday morning. I remained until about seven o'clock when I went away. Did any of the defendants uh, try to rescue or save her or put the blaze out? They did, sir. Her father, Pat Boland, and my brothers, Pat, William and James Kennedy and my mother, Mary Kennedy, told Michael Cleary to let Bridget alone, that it was Bridget was in it. He said... It's not my wife. I'm not going to keep an old witch instead of my wife. My brothers, William and James, said to him, burn her if you like, but give us the key and open the door. You say that uh, they protested by word, but did they do any bodily act to prevent him? No, it was no good for them either. They only wanted to get out of the house. Nobody attempted to put out the blaze? No, sir. No one could get near her. She was set fire to all in a minute. 
A good deal of excitement has been caused in the district about Drangan and Clunine by the mysterious disappearance of a labourer's wife who lived with her husband, a farm labourer in that part of the country. The poor woman had been ill for some time and a few days ago she told her husband that if he did not do something for her by a certain time she would have to be going. An old woman who had been nursing the sick woman was sitting up with her as usual one night last week and, as she puts it, the invalid was drawn away. The country people entertain the opinion that she has gone with the fairies. In our last issue, we referred briefly to the mysterious disappearance of a woman named Bridget Cleary, wife of a man named Michael Cleary, residing at Ballyvedlay, a remote, lonely and isolated district lying a short distance from Clunine, between that village and Mullinahone. It appears that the woman was believed by some parties in her neighbourhood to be possessed of an evil spirit, the consequence of which was that she was subjected to the treatment that resulted in her disappearance. Meanwhile, the police, under the direction of District Inspector J.A. Wansborough of Carrick-on-Shore, proceeded to investigate the affair, with the result that informations were sworn before Mr. W. W. Tennant, Justice of the Peace of Ballinard Castle by William Simpson, caretaker, living at Clunine, and a woman named Burke. Now, this is where Bridget Boland's house was. Yes, this is the actual place where she found herself. And there, the remains of this now, there are no remains of this No, now. they're gone about 20 years, the ruins are, to the clay house. Clay walls, isn't it? It has been... Uh, do you remember it? I do, I remember I found the walls one day. Was there anybody living here? When no, you... there weren't, no. And we can hear a stream just nearby here. This is the stream that you mentioned earlier, near where she was buried. That's right, up, farther up the stream. So the whole yeah. thing took place here within, oh, within a mile square anyway. That's right, or less. Yes. yes, yes. Now, over here is a little, there's a hill here going this right is, up into the sky. This is Kyle Negrani Hill. Touch. Here she was supposed to be riding the fight horse with the fairies every night, which was she was just sick at the time and to raven she was. Did she say this herself? Well she did. She did. She was riding the fight horse with the fairies every night. Uh. And down here on this other boharine to the to the right here, yeah. uh behind some thorn trees, uh, to, the Kennedys lived. That's right, the Kennedy's house was there. That's oh. down two years. It's down I remember the ruins all right, but the zone probably 40 or 50 years again. Was that a mud-walled house as well? It was, yeah. What relation were the Kennedys to Bridget Boland? First cousins. First cousins. And there were a number of those up at the house on the night? There were two or three of them anyway. A few anyway. So her her relatives were all present when... Oh, they were all the relatives were present. Her mother, no, her father was there, I don't think her mother was in it. And her cousins? Cousins, yes, yeah. And a few neighbours. And neighbours. Yeah. And they were they were trying to rid her of the of the fairies, of the evil spirits? Well, uh, they got a cure from a fact doctor, I suppose, and they thought to help for the cure, they were. They were so fond of it, they wanted to cure her. At about three o'clock that afternoon, the body was discovered by Sergeant Rogers of Mullinahone, 
when walking through a swampy bit of land about a quarter of a mile from Cleary's house. He spotted some broken bushes and freshly dug earth and was joined by three other constables. And soon the body of Bridget Cleary was discovered in a shallow grave. There was no clothing, with the exception of a pair of black stockings. The back and lower part of the remains were terribly burned. The head was enveloped in a sack, and an old sheet was rolled around the rest of the body. The coroner's jury returned the following verdict, that the deceased Bridget Cleary, late of Ballyvedlay, was found dead on the lands of Tullycusan on Friday, 22nd of March, 1895. And we further find that death was caused by extensive burns. How or by whom caused we have no evidence to show. We further find that the deceased was alive and in her home on 13th of March. John Hulhan, this is the house where the inquest on Bridget Cleary was held. Yes, that's right. It was held in Montemarche. And exactly two years before that, the curate in the parish died and he's inquest held there in that house also. And did he have some relationship with Bridget Cleary as well? Well, they're good friends. They all live near one another. The priest lived here and they live near one another. And they were busy with one another a lot. But often didn't turn and maybe in the finish because over dogs and things that way. She threw some hot water on a dog of his or something? But she was supposed to have some water on the priest's dog and that the priest must have kind of fell out that time. And he said that she'd be burned worse than the dog or something. Well, she, you'd have bigger burn yourself. That's always, always told anyway. <laughs> but that's just, that's the law. Like, that's the law, yeah. The lore. yeah. And uh, so all the people would have congregated in here then for the inquest? Well, probably. I don't know any of that. There probably wouldn't be many at it either. And, of course, that's very... We're now only about 100 yards from where she, she was She was buried, like, illegally buried. A couple of hundred yards, yeah. That she was illegally buried. And it's to be to near where she was born and near the whole lot, all together in one area there, so. <coughs> Did your father ever, ever tell you how many people turned up here for the inquest or no, what it, the feeling it, was like at the time? No, he never said anything about that, and... He often told stories about it, right, but even meant that you didn't say much about it. He didn't like talking about it. I don't think anyone liked talking about it in the parish. And where was she buried then? She's buried in the village of Clunean, just a mile down the road. The Clonmel Chronicle reported how the great excitement in the area caused by the disappearance of Bridget Cleary became terribly intensified by the discovery of the body. This feeling of excitement was manifested in a very marked manner here in Clonmel on Monday, when it became known that the magisterial inquiry would be resumed and that a much more serious charge would be preferred against the accused than that for which they had been arrested. Crowds of people filled the streets and when conveyed from the jail first to the police barracks and afterwards to the courthouse, there was much shouting and booing. The first charge levelled against those in the house on the Thursday night was assaulting and wounding Bridget Cleary. But with the discovery of the body, more serious charges were laid. Michael Cleary, Pat Boland, Mary Kennedy, Bridget's aunt, Patrick James and Michael Kennedy, her first cousins, together with John Dunn and the youngster, William Ahern, were charged with having at Ballyvodley, on or about, March the 15th, jointly and severally, and with malice aforethought, killed and murdered Bridget Cleary.
Dennis Ganey, known as the Herb Doctor, was charged with being an accessory before the fact. The magisterial inquiry took place in April. One who gave evidence was William Simpson. My name is William Simpson. On the night of the 13th, accompanied by my wife between 9 and 10 o'clock, I went to the house of Patrick Boland, occupied by him, Michael and Bridget Cleary at Ballyvidley. I saw Bridget Cleary, who was sick. When we arrived close to the house, we met Mrs Johanna Burke and inquired from her how was Mrs Cleary. She said they were giving her at this time herbs which they got from Ganey, off the mountain, and that no person would be let in for some time. We then proceeded to the window of the house, which is a new labourer's cottage. In one of the front rooms, I heard voices shouting, Take it, you bitch, you old faggot, or we'll kill you. The shutters of the windows were closed, and the door was locked. After a short time, the door was opened, and I and my wife and two other persons went into the house. I noticed the room I had heard the shouts from. I saw there John Dunn, Patrick Kennedy, James Kennedy and William Kennedy holding Bridget Cleary on the bed. She was on her back and had a nightdress on. Her husband, Michael Cleary, was standing by the bedside. I heard him call for some piss and he said, throw it on. It was brought by Mary Kennedy. Mick Cleary had a saucepan in his hand at the time. He threw the piss on the woman. It was thrown on her by some of those present. William Ahern was present holding a candle. Pat Boland, Mick Kennedy and Johanna Burke were in the room and also Katie Burke, a child. I saw Bridget Cleary struggling on the bed. I heard her speaking. She said, Lay me alone. I then saw her take some liquid off a spoon. I heard some of the people present say it was herbs. She was held down while they forced the liquid into her. One of those present kept a hand on her mouth. They cried out, Come home, Bridget Boland. They all thought she was a witch and tried to hunt her out of the house by torturing her body. Some time after I saw them take her out of the bed, carry her to the kitchen fire and hold her over it. In a short time I could see her body rest on the grate where the fire was burning. Those who placed her over the fire were John Dunn and Pat and Billy and James Kennedy. I saw some red marks on her forehead. One of them said he had to use a red poker on her to make her take the medicine. Her husband was putting questions to her at the fire. He asked her if she was his wife. After she answered the questions, they put her back into the bed. I remained in the house until six o'clock in the morning when I went home. The door was locked and I couldn't leave the house. Brendan, you've known uh, a number of people who had connections with the Ballyvodley and the Bridget Cleary case. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, yes, you know, even as a youngster, people would be pointed out to you as somebody who was a descendant or a relation uh, of uh, the the main characters that were involved in that famous case. Uh, As a boy, I remember hearing about it, but not taking um, much notice particularly. It seemed rather weird sort of a thing. Uh, the, The whole circumstances seemed rather strange and bizarre. But um, when I joined the Nationalists as a trainee reporter at 17 years of age, uh, what was our man in Tipperary at that time? Indeed, the dying of provincial journalists. He was a a legendary figure in his day, John Halpin. He took me under his wing, and um, I trained in court reporting uh, under his aegis and tutelage. He he was a very fine reporter and a brilliant note-taker. He was 
also um, working as a court stenographer at the same time the, it was the practice where a local reporter also did the stenography uh, and um, he had actually as a young reporter covered the Ballyvadley trial himself and a surname's sake of mine John Long who wasn't any relation both of them had d uh, done the report for the Nationalist which was a, a fantastic piece of reporting because it was verbatim, word for word, every blessed thing and of course it ran into a number of editions and he uh, chatting in the evening sometimes would refer to Ballyvadley uh, because it was one of us suppose one of the most celebrated cases he had covered in his career and he would talk about it and he always spoke with tremendous compassion about Cleary himself. He would say that uh, he was in the dock there looking completely bemused and bewildered as if he didn't know what the Dickens all this was about because he was still convinced, John was sure, that uh, his wife would come back, that he hadn't uh, murdered his wife or, or killed her in any way. He had killed a witch or a fairy uh, and in due course... Uh, his wife would, would come back to him and he just didn't seem to understand what all this was about and John sort of felt very, very sorry for him And did this apply to the others that were involved as well the Kennedys and uh, other people? Yes, that they all implicitly believed that a fairy had taken possession of Cleary's wife and that the only way to get her back was to drive the fairy out Now we're standing here at the crossroads John and we're looking up towards the hill in front of the Boland House. Now, there are no bushes growing in it now, but in fact, that wouldn't have been so uh, when she was living here in the house by the stream. Oh, well, it's a different probably then. I went to land people drained and cut clean places ever since until all changed. But were there bushes growing, you were saying, on this hill? In front of her house. Oh, that kind of granny hill. There were a lot of forks growing at one time, and there was a fort in it. And it, this fort was first where the fairies were. And that there she would be up every night riding a white horse. So she she rode this white horse in the fort or up to the fort? Up to the, in the fort, yeah. And that was supposed to be the source of, of the fairies, really? That's right, that's right. In the course of the magisterial hearings, some strange goings-on were brought into the light. After he had burned his wife, Cleary had gone to a neighbour who had a revolver, and he asked this man for the loan of the gun. He explained to the man that he was going to go to the fort in Kyle Granny to find Bridget. She would be riding a grey horse, and he had a knife in his pocket to cut the ropes, tying her to the saddle. If he succeeded in taking her from the fort, she would then stay with him. I am District Inspector Alfred Joseph Wandsborough of the Royal Irish Constabulary, Carrick and Shaw District. The spade is comparatively a new one and the handle is stained with oil, as though carried by a person with oily hands. It's like lamp or paraffin oil. The shovel bears traces up the handle of black, soggy soil, similar to that in the ground where the body was found buried, which was black and boggy and quite different to the upland loam in the locality of Cleary's house. I also found in Cleary's house an empty oil tin with traces of paraffin oil in it, also a tin saucepan and a chamber pot. Amongst those who gave evidence at the magisterial hearing was Pat Boland, the father of the dead girl. 
McCleary said to me, Have you no faith? Don't you know it's with an old witch I'm sleeping? But I said, You're sleeping with my daughter, that's who. They brought her down and put her across the fire. But indeed, the fire would do nothing that Wednesday night, for there was no fire on the hearth. McCleary told me, Call your daughter in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and I'll have her then in spite of the world. I thought then that she was all right with him for then, for the same men brought her back up in the room and put her back in the bed. That was that night. The following night a man came to Mick Cleary to tell him his father was dead. I went to the wake in killing all. And when I came back, I went up to the room and spoke to her. She was grand then, until the night after. We were drinking a sup of tea, and he asked her to eat a piece of bread along with him. She said she would. She ate two bits. But when he offered her the third bit, she wouldn't eat it. He knocked her and tried to put it into her mouth in spite of her. I'll make you take it, you old witch, he said, and he threw her across the fire. To make a long story short, he burned her. Tis himself that burned her. It was given in evidence that the girl, being brought to the fire, asked those carrying her, Are you going to make a herring of me? Give me a chance, for God's sake. A medical doctor who had examined the corpse said that the lower parts of the trunk and abdomen were completely charred. The flesh was burnt off the hips and bones, but the face was perfect, untouched in any way by the flames. I went to the prison on the 22nd and saw Cleary. He was wearing a tweed suit. I took possession of his clothes and examined them. On the right arm of the coat, near the wrist, I noticed a peculiar greasy-looking stain and one or two similar spots on the front, below the pocket. There were similar greasy marks on the front of both legs of the trousers. Acting Sergeant Egan of the police in Drangan told of seeing Cleary leaving the village on March 16th. He followed him and overtook him at the house of Mrs Kennedy. He asked him about his wife. Cleary told him that she had left the house the previous night around midnight. The sergeant, however, had been given information that a violent act had taken place in the house. He asked her father where she was, and he repeated again and again, My daughter will come back to me. My daughter will come back to me. The sergeant entered the house by the back window and found a nightdress partly burnt on the floor. We too went to the back of the cottage. Those are probably out of the original house. That's part of a part of the fireplace. Same as the fireplace. What? This must be an old candle that had to stick. Do you think it's an old candle holder? Yeah. This here is an edging stone for edging knives and slashes and things that way. That again is something from the. Yeah, it was. It's a wheel that's going around. Yeah, that's from the 19th century too. That's right. Mm-hmm. So, and where did Michael Cleary go after this? Where did he go to? 
Then he never came back after them. After jail, he got they were put to jail at him, and they never came back after the round here. They never came back here. Yeah, they, they might have come back once or twice, but they didn't stay. They 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 broke all their connections with the area. They did, yeah. Would that have been true of the Kennedys also? Yes, that's right. At the conclusion of the magisterial hearing, the nine prisoners were sent forward for trial to the summer assizes. Six were charged, including her father, with feloniously killing and murdering Bridget Cleary. Three others, two Kennedys and William Ahern, were indicted on a charge of wounding the dead girl. The murder trial opened in Clonmel on July the 4th, 1895. The prosecution case was outlined on the first day. Then, on the second day, there was a dramatic development. The counsel for the defence, with the agreement of the prosecution, entered a plea of guilty of manslaughter. This was accepted by the court, and all that was then left was for the judge to pass sentence. He sentenced Pat Kennedy, whom he considered to be the most culpable after Cleary, to five years' penal servitude. John Dunn, a man knowledgeable on herbs and pishogues, was given three years. William and James Kennedy each received a year and a half imprisonment dating from the date of their committal, while the old broken father, Pat Boland, got six months. The sentencing of Michael Cleary. Your life was in great peril for the life you have taken away, and if you had been found guilty of the capital charge, as you very likely would if the case had gone on, you would have stood in the most imminent danger of answering to the law for a most cruel and wicked crime. At the end of it all, you burned alive the young wife you swore to love and cherish. I am bound to satisfy the law and public justice by a punishment adequate to the offence. And to show the opinion I entertain regarding your guilt, I sentence you to twenty years' penal servitude. Cleary, who was weeping during the judge's remarks, here threw up his hands and as he was brought down to the cells, cried, I'm innocent! I'm innocent! I'm innocent! When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.